Good morning, church. Great to be with you. Uh, we are continuing in our series on the wilderness as we journey through the season of Lent. Uh, there has just been something about uh, this theme and this year with all that's happening in our world where um, exploring um, what it looks like to be uh, not just in a physical wilderness, but in a sort of spiritual wilderness and a time of uncertainty. Uh, and so we've been looking at this passage in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 8. And so after wandering through the desert, the Israelites stand at the threshold uh, to the land that was promised to them and a future of just sort of unseen possibilities, right? Not, uh, not that different from where we kind of sit today with things feeling like they're moving toward hope and about to reopen. We're in this moment of um, preparing to, to I, I think, to experience a shift not just the shift that we experience every year as we enter into a season of Easter as a church, but as a, as a culture. And so today in particular, I'm excited about this message because we're going to talk about the idea of remembering. So if you would turn with me, as we have every week during Lent, turn with me to Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2. We see this word remember pop up right away. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. A little later on in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and your gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. A few verses later in Deuteronomy 8.18, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. This idea of remembering is not uh, limited even to this chapter. It's all over Deuteronomy and all over the Exodus story. Moses just keeps repeating this. Remember, remember, remember. Deuteronomy 4.9, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Deuteronomy 4.23, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord. Remember, uh, Lord your God, that he made with you. Do not make yourselves an idol in the form of anything that the Lord has forbidden. Deuteronomy 6.12, be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt that place of slavery. Remember, remember, remember. I grew up in a home where, um, for whatever reason, myself, my two other brothers, and my sister became, just from very early on to this very day, unbelievably nostalgic. Uh, we just built in these traditions. I can't tell you how often in our home, again, to this very moment on holidays when we're all back home in the summer, we're just like, no, that's not how we do it. That's not how we do it. Oh, tradition. What about tradition? What about tradition? A lot of times we're just being silly with one another, but it's this continued draw back to like 
hey, there's something important about us. Maybe it's that we you know, still live on the same street that we all grew up in. Um, but my hunch is that in part it has to do with my mom and dad, for whatever reason, uh, not being super nostalgic. Um, the amount of times we have like, as adults come downstairs and found that our like half of our baseball cards are like not, not there anymore or our, our comics or those pictures or um, those like books that we wanted to save or that one little like heirloom or relic from our childhood. Um, I, I, for me, there is a, a, a story that um, I guess you could say is a bit traumatic. Uh, I remember I don't know if I came in from playing outside or it was waking up in the morning. I can't remember exactly when it was, but discovering that my first stuffed animal, Choo Choo, which was sort of a dark gingerbread type character, um, was, was gone. And I looked around and looked around and I started to get a little bit more frantic and thought maybe I left them outside, ran outside, where's Choo Choo, where's Choo Choo? And I went to my mom and said, Mom, where's Choo Choo? And she, in the, in the most mom voice she could muster, um, was like, Andrew, we, we, had, to, we had to let Choo Choo go. <laughs> and, and your mom has explained this years. We've, this story comes up pretty often, and my mom explained, you know, the, the, the stuffed animal was just ripped open. Its stuffing was coming out. It was just grody and gross. Um, but I ran, uh, there was like a dumpster behind the parking lot that was behind our house. And I figured that's where my mom threw it. And I just beelined it for that dumpster to try to find Choo Choo. To this day, our, our stuffed animals are a big part of our nostalgia. We bring them up for every holiday for like, or not every holiday, sorry, just for Christmas. Every Christmas, we go and we grab our stuffed animals and we bring them up. They are just covered in dust and it's not, a, it's not necessarily a great scene, but good Lord, it just brings back every like precious memory. There's such a, a, a deep desire to remember and recall. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is commanding them to remember, 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 which is a funny thing to be commanded, Right? It's a curious thing to be repeated over and over again. We like to talk a lot about the commands of God, but I don't hear very often people talk about how often God is commanding his people, stop and remember. It's like all uh, the enemies that this tribe was about to face in the promised land, every outside uh, enemy they could face, it seemed like the most dangerous one was within them. The enemy was forgetting who they were, forgetting where they'd come from and what God had done for them. There are even commands to remember like how they had jacked everything up. So it wasn't just remember how good God is, but remember your disobedience. Uh, it says in uh, Deuteronomy 32, seven, remember the days of old, consider generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell your elders, and they will explain to you. Like, remember, remember how things had gotten all messed up before. I love this. It's like resisting thinking that the world began when you were born or that you aren't being shaped by your cultural moment. In this case, a new generation that, will, that only would have experienced the promised land. Like they wouldn't have experienced any part of slavery, any part of the wilderness, not the testing. That's all they would have experienced. He's like, you're gonna have to repeat this to the next generation 
because they're going to forget. It's like he's saying resist chronological arrogance. Uh, G.K. Chesterton in his book Orthodoxy writes, tradition, tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about right now. I love that. Every time we see the command to remember, we are getting a glimpse of what this tribe will be in the promised land prone to forget. And why forgetting these things will lead them away from the path of life. We see an example of this at the end of this book uh, when God gives them a ritual. He gives them a practice to help them. Deuteronomy 6, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 26, verse 1. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land, your first part of your paycheck, uh, the Lord is giving you and put them in a basket. So he's giving them very specific instructions. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in the office at that time, so now he's giving them words to say, liturgy, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest then shall take the basket from your hands, set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God, and then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father. So you have to declare this now. My father was a wandering Aramean. Say that. My father was a wandering Aramean. Ever heard someone say, like, man, you've forgotten where you come from. You ever said that to someone? Had that said to you? Like, what's that person saying? What are they saying? saying, you forgot who you are. My father is a wandering Aramean. It's like, my father, my father, they're referring here to Abram, later renamed Abraham. He was called by God to leave his home with his father. God told Abram to head out to a land which he would be shown. It's like saying, my father was a wandering homeless refugee. God is telling them to declare who they are, to remember their story, remember that you once were this. They're commanded to not forget they were once homeless and poor and once suffering in slavery. Now this is all, this passage that we're reading right now, this is all in the context of a giving ritual. And so this passage goes on. My father's a wandering Aramean. Um, then you shall declare before the Lord your God, um, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and, become, and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, our toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to the place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners reside among you shall rejoice in all the good things that the Lord has given to you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all you produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. 
It's like when you forget your story, you're gonna begin to feel entitled. You say when you forget your humble beginnings, you begin to be proud. When you forget your Egypts, you begin to be self-righteous. Remember, remember God and remember what he's done. The most common point of their story that they're to remember is that line, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. It comes up again and again and again. In Deuteronomy 24, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns, whether they're a part of your tribe or not, whether they think like you or not. It goes on, do not deprive the foreigner of the father and the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. There's the line again, remember the Lord your God redeemed you from there. It's like saying, remember you were saved by grace. Remember you were saved by grace. Remember you were saved by grace. If you forget his deliverance and grace, he's saying it could have serious consequences. Is this why we get the command to remember, 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 remember all the time? There are consequences to forgetting. That is why I commanded you to do this. We read more in verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you, have, and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest your grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. He's literally saying, like, leave it. Leave it. I know you worked really hard to produce all of this. I know you did incredible, incredible work to get to this point, to have all of this like fruit. I know you worked really hard and you climbed the ladder and you went to school and you did all of this and you earned your way. He's saying, hey, 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 don't hold it too tightly. And then the refrain again, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this again and again and again and again. I love this because God isn't just giving them commands. He's not just telling them what to do, right? This is all embedded in a practice. He's giving them rituals and liturgy. And where we're landing in the plane today, he's giving them feasts. I want you, he's saying, to order your moments after remembering who God is and what he's done, which gives way right to who you and I are. So let's talk about feasts, because you knew I was going to say that. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. So here you have a list of all of these feasts, these appointed times, and I want to look today at the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the seven major feasts on the Hebrew calendar. These were spring feasts and fall feasts organized around agricultural cycles of planting and harvesting. So feasts were common in the ancient world and agricultural societies. People set aside particular times to thank the gods and to ask the gods for continued bounty. So the spring feasts were Passover, then unleavened bread, then first fruits, then Pentecost. And then you have the fall feasts, which were trumpets, then the atonement, and then tabernacles. So if you spend time studying these feasts, you notice again and again that there is something about this calendar that's very different 
different than other time in particular. The entire feast calendar is marked out as time that is different. It's like there's regular time, the day-to-day that gets interrupted at these appointed times by these festivals. So when the command uh, is to do no work and the command comes up again to simply rest in what's been done for you, it's like this invitation over and over to just stop and to trust. For many of us, life is just ordinary things. And then you have these moments of joy and moments of celebration that happen here and there, moments of levity. But then you just get back to real life. You get back to the grind. The feast calendar, though, begins with celebration, saying here's the important stuff. Here's the gratitude. Here's the main event, resting in the goodness of God. And then there's some ordinary time you return back to, but then you come back to these, again, this line Moses uses, these appointed times. These moments that you're commanded to stop and commanded. I remember years ago, I gave a whole sermon on like, you're commanded to party. For those of you who grew up with a, an understanding of God that, um, I don't know, that doesn't align with the idea of God just saying over and over, someone get the DJ and someone get the wine. You have not grown up with a Christian understanding of God. And this time to stop isn't simply just to enjoy for enjoyment's sake, but it's to remember Again, the refrain to stop and to celebrate and to remember comes up again and again in some form in these feasts. Stop, celebrate, remember. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles then, this was the last feast of the year uh, and the last of the fall feasts. Uh, It was the feast before the winter when hopefully rains would come and water the crops so they'd grow. So in the spring, you'd have a harvest and something to celebrate and give thanks for the spring feasts. Um, So the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Sukkot, uh, we read uh, this in Leviticus, um, uh, verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles, or again, Feast of Sukkot, begins. It lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Here's the line, do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. Um, It is... uh, it is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. So beginning on the 15th day of the seventh month, after you've gathered crops, celebrate the festival of the Lord for seven days. We get more instructions. Put palms and willows and other leafy trees then um, on, these, um, on this Sukkot. Like gather these things together. Celebrate this as a festival. Uh, this is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live, here it is, in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. This is more of an obviously modern-day example of a Sukkot. This, for the Feast of Tabernacles to this very day, uh, is um, a version of what the Jews will set up and do for this festival for these seven days. This was actually made. I called my my Jewish neighbor, my 15-year-old buddy from next door, um, who's like a killer woodworker, and asked him, hey, would you build me a... Sukkot for this sermon and so he came in here and um and and built this for me and and so few as people would they'll sit and they'll live in these sleep in these they'll build bigger versions depending on um 
and how devout you are and where you are in the world, um, there's still this tradition every year around the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, one writer says that few of the feasts that were uh, a part of the Old Covenant worship were as joyful as the Feast of Tabernacles. This celebration was the last, again, of the fall festivals, and so this is when you would come together to pray for a good rainy season, which lasted from October through March. The Sukkot was designed, again, to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land when God made the people live in these booths that God provided. So during this time, each Israelite family was supposed to construct this sukkah and live in it for a week. So as time went on, all sorts of traditions and rules sprung up about how to actually construct this. Whole volumes have been written about the intricacies of sukkah construction. For instance, um, you ha it has to admit starlight. So you would put, as we read in Leviticus, you want like these natural greens over top of it. And then uh, you want to make sure that the greens aren't covering the whole thing so that you can look up and see the stars just as their ancestors did. Remember that God was watching out for you. Um, you uh, rain must be allowed to penetrate. There's this whole thing uh, about storms that you want it strong enough that like casual rain and wind won't knock it down. But if like a big storm comes through, it will totally wreck it. Again, just trying um, to make sure it's modeled after and, and will provoke the right memory. Sukkah uh, cannot stand beneath a tree because a tree is a habitation in its own right, hence nullifying the purpose of the sukkah. It's like all these different priests um, are outlining all these little different pieces. And if you, as you go through history, I mean, I found article after article after book after book about the different ways to think about this construction. Um, they're all just saying, like, there's different ways to remember different things we want to call to mind. According to one interpretation in, uh, verse, of verse uh, 41, there were um, decorated, you should decorate this with different kinds of fruit that grew in Palestine. Later generations obeyed the command to rejoice with fruit and foliage by having people carry um, like, a, like some sort of citron or a lulav in joyful procession. So a citron was just this citrus fruit native to the Middle East that looks something like a large lemon. Um, a lulav is a, a branch of a palm with like two branches bound to one side of it and three willow branches to the other. Uh, just again, all these specific instructions. Later on, in keeping with Sukkot's purpose to remember the wilderness journey, Israelites added a water pouring ceremony to recall those occasions when the Lord gave Israel water in the desert, which we're going to talk about next week. This all doubled for praying, uh, praying for God to provide rain in the winter so the spring harvest would be good. All of this in service, again, to remembering. Stay with me. It's like remember your own fail, like frail frames. Remember your own frail frames and our utter dependency on the Lord God commanding them to put themselves in the shoes of their ancestors so that they would remember, again, God's gracious provision. Because it's going to be tempting to sit in your promised land house after a great harvest and say, look what we did. Look at how we've profited. At the peak of the harvest, God commands them to give up the comforts of their home and to go live in a booth for a week to be reminded that their success in the promised land was wholly on account of God's grace. These were tangible, physical 
reminders that say, trust me, trust me alone for your daily bread, for your joy, for hope, for a life worth living. For God, remembering leads to trust. Remembering leads to trust. Now I want to wrap this all up by actually going to the New Testament. Turn with me to John 8. And I want to summarize a familiar story. Because uh, in the time of Jesus, in John 8, we have Jesus um, approaching and having these fascinating interactions at the festival of Sukkot, at the festival of the tabernacles. So in John 8, if you're unfamiliar with the story or brand new to the way of Jesus or just haven't read it in a while, we have a woman who gets caught mid-adultery. The religious police bring her, but not, by the way, the fellas, into the temple area. That's a whole other sermon. And they make her stand before this group, before these religious leaders. And they bring her to Jesus, trying to trap Jesus into saying that she should be stoned according to the law. Jesus, however, bends down and writes on the ground, which is a classic example, by the way, of what Jesus, like, uh, of what Jesus does all the time. Right? Like, right up there with rubbing mud on the eyes and his first post-resurrection line when he says, like, you guys get, go get some food. He then says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He writes some more on the ground. And then the men start to leave until it's just Jesus and the woman. And he asks her if anyone condemns her. And she says, no. He tells her that he doesn't either. And she should leave her life of sin. End of story. So the question I'm sure you're asking, the question I've always asked is, what is he writing on the ground? Now, if you back up to the previous chapter in chapter 7, you read that it was the time of the Festival of Tabernacles what we just talked about. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles at this point, this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, was the last, still the last feast of the year, the last of the fall feasts. And as the last of the fall feasts, it was that feast uh, that where you were praying, hopefully the rains would come and water the crops so that it would grow in the spring. And it became so much about that. You'd have a harvest and something to celebrate and give thanks for in the future. Now, thousands of pilgrims in the first century would pour into Jerusalem for the eight days of feasting, staying there again in these makeshift shelters. During the eight days, there were sacrifices and singing, special rituals oriented around asking God to bring the winter rains so they'd have food. The religious leaders would teach during these eight days about the significance of water. Water is rain, water is thirst, thirst as a metaphor for spiritual longing, lots of teaching about water alongside the remembering of how God took care of them when they were in the wilderness. The eight days all built up to the last day when the high priest would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine and pour them together over the altar while the crowd chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna just means God save us, as in God, please bring us the winter rains to save us from drought and famine. Now, later, Hosanna begins to have political connotations, uh, as in God save us from the Romans who have invaded our land. With that in mind, 
Notice this line from John chapter 7, right before the story of the woman caught in adultery. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Let's pause. These little details that John sprinkles in, they're not like, they're not fluff and they're not by accident. Why is he speaking in a loud voice? Well, because it's the last day and the crowd would have been chanting. He wants to be heard over the noise, order, over this like huge gathered throng. And what does he say in his outside voice? He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. I hope all the lights on your dashboard right now are going off. He chooses this moment a moment when people were focused on their very real physical needs for water and calls them to their spiritual thirst, thirst that he insists that he can do something about. Is this, by the way, earlier in the chapter when he tells his brothers to go to the festival and he stays back telling them the time isn't right? Like, like is it that he's waiting for the last day to make this speech with the ritual of the priest pouring the wine and water and the crowd chanting about their need for a savior as a backdrop. This is what he says. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang back. It's brilliant. Like the theatrics alone are fantastic. Thousands of people feasting and drinking and living in makeshift shelters on the side of the hill in Jerusalem. Now, this is basically religious camping with a lot of wine involved. And what often happens when a lot of people drink and camp together? Can you see how two people might end up in the wrong tent regretting decisions that they had made the night before? It's not surprising then that the next morning, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees drag a woman into the temple courts who they'd caught with a man she wasn't married to. They drag this woman the morning after to Jesus because they want, it says, to trap him. They don't believe in him. They've rejected him. They want to expose him as a fraud. And so they challenge him with a passage from the law. And then he bends down and he writes on the ground. And what does he write? Well, what have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law been doing the past eight days? They've been at the feast. And at the feast, they've been teaching, right? What have they been teaching? Been teaching about water. What passages have they been teaching? Interesting that you might ask. One of the passages that was taught at the Feast of Tabernacles is from the prophet Jeremiah. This is a passage that is still read today. The passage is about dust, which is what you have if you don't have water. Here are a few of the lines. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. So what does Jesus do? He takes one of the passages that they all would have been familiar with and he turns it on them, all without saying a word. Here is living water, Jesus said. He is living water in their midst, inviting them to trust him. But they don't believe him. They try to trap him. 
They teach about God and water and hope and new life. But when it arrives in their midst, in a person that they hadn't expected, they can't do it. They cling to the familiar, rejecting the living water that's right in front of them. So what does Jesus write on the ground? I think he writes their names. Their names. They turned away. Forsaken truth. So Jesus acts out this passage in Jeremiah. It's as if these religious leaders had forgotten something central to their story. They hadn't remembered to remember. Central to the scriptures, central to who God is. Like, and so they couldn't recognize God when he was right there in their midst. May it not be so with us. I don't know what remembering looks like for you. I was thinking a lot about what the action steps are after a message like this. You know, in a moment, we're gonna go and take communion together. But I think about Sabbath. Every Sabbath, I've mentioned this, we, we light, you know, our family, we, we make sure we turn everything off and we light these four candles. The four candles represent rest. We say we wanna rest and reset and rejoice and we worship. So we stop to remember who God is, to remember um, our humanity, to remember the goodness of God. Um, not giving up worshiping together as we begin to uh, regather, uh, as, as many of us just weary of going online, like need to like re-up our commitment to still being together in some way online on Sunday, like something about worshiping together and singing these same songs and repeating our giving liturgy and sharing our stories and our prayer requests and engaged in the life of our home church and practicing community. These are the actions that help us to remember. bringing the things of God into every moment of rest and celebration is a critical place to begin. And so church, may our names be written in the book of life, not the dust of forgetfulness.